This podcast is brought to you by JDRF Australia and Sanofi. Hello, I'm Andrew Gagan, and welcome to the T1D Tune-In. T1D used to be known as juvenile diabetes and is often regarded as a disease affecting just children, but they never grow out of it. In this series, we'll hear from adults with type 1 who are leading inspirational lives. We'll also talk to the brilliant researchers working on exciting new treatments and are striving to find a cure. A diagnosis of type 1 diabetes as a child is both confronting and confounding and comes at a time when life is already changing so rapidly. Researching how to improve the lives of children with diabetes is the work of our next guest. Professor Liz Davis is the Head of Diabetes Clinical Services at Perth Children's Hospital and President of the Australasian Paediatric Endocrine Group. Looking after kids living with diabetes is try and make sure that actually they live their lives as they want and they make diabetes fit in rather than having to fit their lives in around their diabetes. Liz is also co-lead of the Diabetes and Obesity Research Team at Telethon Kids, where they're busy researching the relationship between diabetes and exercise. And Professor Liz Davis joins us now. Liz, welcome to the T1D TuneIn podcast. Oh, thanks, Andrew. I'm pleased to be here with you. Now, we're obviously all encouraged to exercise because it's healthy. Is it more of a challenge for someone with diabetes? Absolutely. I think um, if you asked anybody, and, and I look after children and adolescents, but I hear the same from my adult colleagues, how it is to exercise with diabetes, universally they would say it brings a series of challenges and it's just harder. Yeah, a number of extra things they need to think about to be able to exercise safely and effectively. Does it come down to the age, do you think? Does that affect the motivation and perhaps the ability to exercise? Absolutely. I think um, there's a couple of things in play here. One is if you want to exercise and uh, motivation to exercise is a, is a challenge, I think, across the whole of our community these days and why we're seeing the increased numbers of children and adults who are overweight and obese is is probably linked to the fact that the motivation to exercise is not as great as it should be across the whole community. I don't think that the motivation to exercise is any reduced necessarily in children and families living with type 1 diabetes, but it's harder. So they have to put more effort into being organised to exercise. They need to think about many many things to exercise, the type of exercise they're going to do, how much insulin they need to exercise, whether they should take carbs before they exercise, whether they need to take their blood sugar when they're exercising, um, whether or not they're they're wearing a continuous glucose monitor would impact that, how they manage their blood sugars during the exercise, then after the exercise. In fact, even for many people who exercise, they have to worry about whether or not their blood sugars go low the following night. So hugely complex challenge. Nonetheless, not something that's not achievable, but you have to absolutely Mm. take your hat off to people with type 1 diabetes, the effort it takes to exercise safely and effectively. Am I right in saying perhaps in the back of their minds is that fear and, and the, of the difficulty to maintain an appropriate glucose level while you're exercising? Yeah, and I think as a paediatrician, we, we see two levels of fear. We see the fear in the children or the teenagers about exercising. And equally as important and sometimes greater is the fear in parents who um, have to have that confidence when they send their child off to school sport or to weekend sport, I suppose, to let them go and, and be positive that they're going to get through that exercise without running into trouble with either a low blood sugar or a high blood sugar. And much of that fear is... Um, 
generated probably by lack of confidence and lack of knowledge. And that's something that's come through a lot in the um, academic literature lately, that both patients and healthcare professionals perhaps don't feel as confident navigating the challenges of exercise as we'd like. A lot of them say that they're either, you know, they don't feel comfortable giving advice, they don't think the advice is, that they should be giving is clear. And exercise comes in so many shapes and forms, and it's not a one-size-fits-all. You know, So for a patient, going for a 60-minute slow jog in the morning is not the same as playing a game of intermittent high-intensity basketball. So they have so many different scenarios to get to terms with. It's, it's hard. So Liz, if someone with diabetes is therefore reluctant to participate and reluctant to exercise because perhaps there is that fear they can't control their levels. Um, longer term, what are the consequences of this, given that it's obviously important for all, all people to exercise? Yeah, it's, it's a common scenario and there are a couple of ways you could look at this. Let's start with exercise itself. One of the things we know, one of the long-term morbidities we're all trying to avoid or reduce is um, cardiovascular disease in people living with diabetes and actually in the general community. But um, the reality is cardiovascular disease is increased as a risk in those who've been living with diabetes for a long period of time. And there are many risk factors that contribute to that. Um, other ones include blood pressure levels, lipid levels, what your long-term glycemic or glucose controls been. But absolutely an important risk factor contributor is your fitness levels and your, your weight or your body mass index. And so that's where exercise is particularly important for people living with diabetes and something I think most clinical services now build into their routine clinical care. So I think from a health point of view, and cardiovascular perspective exercise is absolutely equally if not more important for people living with diabetes but there are other aspects as well and I suppose this feeds into the mental health space you know if if as a teenager or as a child you don't either don't feel confident or your, your parents are anxious you know, to let you join the sport team at school or play phys ed in the classroom in in high school play cricket on the weekend, particularly surf club because it's in the water, which brings an added level of concern for parents, you immediately are missing out on one of the really important parts of childhood, um, you know, in engaging with other kids in fun activities in a group and perhaps reinforcing to many children that they are different. When our whole premise of looking after kids living with diabetes is try and make sure that actually they live their lives as they want and they make diabetes fit in rather than having to fit their lives in around their diabetes. So that's also a really important element of people not being able to engage in sport. And I think um, certainly our observation and experience has been that feeds into the another really important piece that's coming in relevant for people with and without diabetes is that exercise plays a really important part in maintaining either good mental health or at least improving your mental health if it's not as good as it could be. So it, it's increasingly been seen as one of the therapeutic interventions for mental health challenges or problems. I think exercise cuts in across the board, Andrew. So Liz, what happens when a child with type 1 becomes an adolescent because you've got hormones that are raging and it is such a difficult time already to manage blood glucose levels. How do you then manage exercise at the same time? It's a really good point, Andrew. Um, first of all, anybody who's lived with adolescents knows that it's often a time when they may disengage from exercise anyway. A usual pattern of adolescence is 
increasing independence from um, the family, parental supervision, increasing time with their family and friends. And, and that can be particularly challenging for parents who are anxious to release, I suppose, some of that independence to a child with type 1 diabetes because they're worrying how well they'll look after themselves. So despite all that, there are many fantastic um, young people, adolescents living with diabetes who do engage in a lot of exercise. I think the main approach there is just to help them, to help them understand what happens to their diabetes when they exercise, when they do the sort of exercise they want to do, encourage them to come to us with questions, to seek answers on how best to manage whatever activity is they're taking part in, go through the major risks, the troubleshooting, so that should something unexpected happen, they have a plan, encourage them to talk with their sports coaches or their um, school PE teachers so they also are a little bit across the challenges of exercising with diabetes and really try and keep an open dialogue going, I think. We've obviously spoken about the problems associated with exercise and type 1, but your team's actually come up with some solutions in, in the form of an app. Tell us how that works. Look, yeah, this is some work that um, Dr. Vanutha Shetty, um, one of the, she's just finished a PhD and a um, paediatric endocrinologist in our department is absolutely passionate about and part of a project that was actually JDRF funded. And what we did is we heard from a lot of both adolescents and parents of children with type 1 diabetes I suppose, reiterating many of the challenges you and I have just spoken about. And so we met, we had multiple workshops and summits and focus groups with these um, young people and their parents. And we continually heard they wanted to be more independent in managing their exercise. They wanted really good advice so that they could be empowered to make decisions and know they were making the right decisions. And then discussions led to how do you want to receive this advice? overwhelmingly they were interested in receiving it via an app and I suppose teenagers more than any of us are very familiar with apps and their phones, they're never far from their phones. And so um, Vanutha and our team have worked very closely with actually a fabulous group of um, young people who've helped to develop this app, which is designed to provide education. You know, we can't solve all the problems or take them away necessarily. The whole approach is about providing the information necessary, the evidence based research, so what we know, in a form that they can then use it to hopefully improve their exercise experience. That app's actually come quite a long way. We've piloted it and had a lot of feedback from um, young people about the bits they like and the bits they don't like about the app. It's been gone back to the app developer, which is a bit of a black box to me, I must say, and they've come back with trying to address all the feedback and we're now piloting it, running a trial with um, 60 young adult or adolescents and young adults testing the app and um, seeing whether it actually can help them to exercise. Well, two things. We're interested in whether it allows them to feel confident to exercise more than they did previously. And secondly, whether when they exercise, the information from the app works for them and actually helps them get better glycemic control and feel more confident when they're exercising. So it's exciting. We're really looking forward to seeing where this goes. It does sound exciting. When do you think it might roll out? Well, we're due to finish the trial early next year. So as I say, it's been through lots of iterative processes getting to this stage and really has been a huge, um, a big project with lots of input from really from the people who are going to use it. And so we're hoping the fact they've had such a strong input means that it's going to meet the needs of the people who will be using it, young people with type 1 diabetes. Once the trial's finished, we need to make sure that there's it all looks good and that it didn't give any advice that didn't work. And um, then we'll be hoping to roll it out certainly to everybody in our clinic. And then we'd love to share it with other people who are keen to use it. 
Liz, it sounds as though you're a big advocate of technology and type 1 diabetes. When should newly diagnosed kids be introduced to devices such as a pump or a continuous glucose monitor? Look, I am a really big advocate of technology. You're absolutely right, Andrew, but I suppose even more I'm an advocate for choosing the right technology for the right person at the right time. And so I'm not sure there is one answer to your question. Um, I can tell you what we do in our clinic. From the day that somebody's diagnosed with diabetes, I think all clinical teams are developing a relationship with that family, trying to assess what the health literacy what the engagement of that family, what their grief reaction to diabetes is and how they're travelling with the diagnosis. So once you've got a sense of that, it sets the scene for how fast you might progress through education and how quickly or not you might introduce the concept of technologies. As you may well be aware, in 2017, the federal government subsidised CGM for a large, the majority of young people under 21s living with type 1 diabetes And the decision in our clinic, actually based on feedback from families, was that we introduced the choice to use a continuous glucose monitor actually in the first days following diagnosis. Now, that might sound a little overwhelming, but the flip side is you're taking away the need to do multiple blood glucose, you know, self-monitoring blood glucose finger pricks every day. But more importantly, you're providing families with a huge amount of information. They can see what's happening minute to minute with the blood glucose levels as they learn about diabetes. From our perspective, we have found that a really effective time to introduce continuous glucose monitoring. Now, not everybody takes it up at that stage, but sort of 90 to 95% of families will absolutely jump at the opportunity to use continuous glucose monitoring in those early days. That prompts me to ask, for those families living in remote areas that may struggle to access healthcare readily, this must be quite revolutionary using this technology. Yeah, I think it has actually. It's it's a really good point, Andrew. Um, I think we've learnt a lot in the last six to 12 months living under the COVID experience about our ability to offer virtual care. Now, I don't think anything takes from the face-to-face care absolutely has a critical role. And I think you'd find that most centres around, certainly around Australia, still see every new diagnosed young person in a hospital for education to, you know, or early on to get them kick-started. But we've certainly found in WA and about 30 to 40% of our newly diagnosed young people with type 1 diabetes live in rural and regional areas. The use of the continuous glucose monitor, it can be uploaded to um, software programs so it can be seen by the clinical team at the um, tertiary centre has really allowed some fantastic dialogue between the family and the clinical team, troubleshooting problems well before their next clinical appointment, and and really speaks to how engaged parents are and how much they're concerned for their kids, that they're very quick to pick up patterns. The child's blood glucose levels going up when they're stressed, or um, I've noticed it goes up before their football match, and it gives them an opportunity to call and get assistance you know, sometimes many weeks or months before the next clinic appointment. So I think not only rural and remote, that's helped every child in Australia with type 1 diabetes, I think. I guess, I guess it also comes down to education, as you touched on there too. Obviously, that begins the day someone is diagnosed, particularly, I guess, kids and their families. They'll be confused and, and perhaps scared. So do you feel as though we're getting that education process right at the moment? Every centre does it slightly differently. 
But I have no doubt that certainly every centre in Australia is doing their absolute utmost to deliver that education in the best way they can for the, for each family. I think one of the things that's certainly changing across medicine and in, in paediatric diabetes is, is at the moment is that understanding that one size does not fit all and that it's really important that we learn to personalise this journey. And you can't just say, well, we're going to educate everybody in the first three days and send them home and there'll be another 14 hours of education and then they know diabetes. Because for some families, that journey will be three or four times as long. And that's okay. They might need to receive the education in a different format. English may not be their first language. Health literacy might be low. Or as you said, they just be might be so scared and dealing with the grief of this new diagnosis, they're just not ready to take it in. While other families may come from an experience of a, a loved member of their family already living with diabetes or from a health background, and they'll be sort of up and running in no time. So absolutely, we've got a lot to learn, I think, about the way that we deliver education. And rightly so, people these days demand a lot more of their health teams, I think, and expect more of resources that are provided to them. Certainly clinical services have been slow to move perhaps with the times and we're really just starting, only starting to get better at online digital educational resources, interactive resources, so that we've, we've got a lot to learn as well, I think. And you speak of understanding, understanding how diabetes affects a population. So how important is it to have a database? Because I understand you are building a large database in Western Australia. I suppose, yeah, I'm, I'm a really strong advocate that you don't know what you don't know. And one of the best ways to know about what's happening with the kids or the patients that you care for is to actually have that data recorded and look at it longitudinally. Um, so in Western Australia, we have actually had a complete database of all the children under 18. Oh, it's almost um, 25, 28 years now. It allows you to look at what your outcomes or what not the outcomes of your patients are over time. It allows you to look at when you make changes to the way you run your clinical service or you introduce new technologies, um, what the outcome is on um, either you know, glycemic outcomes, whatever you're measuring. So it allows you to assess the impact of changes you make, which I think is fantastic. It also, for us and for our patients, has allowed us to benchmark against other centres around Australia. So I don't think any of our patients want to attend a centre with the worst outcomes in the country they live in. They probably all want to attend a centre with the best outcomes available and um, fortunately you know, we all have challenges in being able to meet that target. And it also allowed us to benchmark internationally, which is also a fantastic learning opportunity and then allows you to go to the um, those people in the uh, you know exec of the hospital and the health department with really good evidence about where improvements might need to be made or why you'd like to make changes to improve the service you can um, deliver to the patients you care for. The database you touched on is perhaps something that we're working on at the moment, which is to really get a life course picture of what happens, what is the future of kids who live with type 1 diabetes in Western Australia. And so we've been um, working on developing a database that will actually continue when um, young people are transitioned into the adult world and will provide a continuous collection of data so that we can look at outcomes and impacts of things that were done early in childhood or technologies that may or may not have been adopted what impacts there are on long-term outcomes such as um, diabetes complications, glycemic control, mental health outcomes, quality of life. There are so many aspects of one's life that are impacted by living with diabetes. So I'm guessing you'd like to see a national database. 
There is actually a fabulous national database that was kicked off and actually supported by JDRF called ADDN, A-D-D-N, and it started in the paediatric space um, and has now grown to include adults, which is fantastic. The challenge is, I suppose, what we call ascertainment in the scientific space is that not just having a snapshot of some centres, but actually trying to collect data across the whole of Australia so that you get a good representation of minority groups, of rural and regional groups to really understand what the outcomes are, which then helps direct um, decision-making around where services and supports best need to be delivered. So yeah, that's aspirational, but we are heading in the right direction. Liz, you have been very generous with your time. I do appreciate that. All the best with your work. Professor Liz Davis, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. Nice to speak with you. If you'd like to find out more about JDRF Australia or get involved with their various initiatives supporting the Australian T1D community, visit their website, jdrf.org.au. For all the latest updates on T1D research, search JDRF Australia on Facebook or follow them on Instagram under at JDRFAUS. And keep an ear out for more episodes in our T1D tune-in series, wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Until then, I'm Andrew Gagan. Thanks for listening. Views expressed in this podcast are broadcast for informational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice. Consult your team of healthcare professionals for health or personal advice that is right for you. you.